I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and I'm going to go into just the beginning of chapter 2, to the end of verse 4 in chapter 2. Whatever happens, as citizens of heaven live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggles you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great, Trevor, thank you very much. I'd love you just to uh, have that passage open, page 1113, over onto page 1114. Uh, and just while I get my prop ready for this morning, if you want to read through it again, just refresh yourself with uh, amid Paul's own suffering and trial, uh, what he's encouraging and exhorting in the Philippians. So good to have the Word of God, so good to have God's Spirit bringing God's Word alive in like no other book, or we might call it inspired writing, this truly inspired by God himself. Uh, what we're doing here at St. Darnis, if you're uh, new or you're just visiting here today, is we, each term we look at a, a series of teachings, trying to sort of build on it, and uh, what we're doing is looking at the church. How does God see the church as he's... Uh, inspired the writers of the Bible to describe it. And we've looked at various metaphors or images. We've looked at the church as a bride. 
as a temple made of living stones. And we've played with that analogy. We've looked at the church as a family. We've looked at the church as a body, uh, united, one body, but many parts. And I guess what we're trying to do really uh, is to get back to the masterpiece that Jesus created, the church that he called into being through Peter and the disciples. And as the Spirit came on Pentecost and the church grew, it was like this extraordinary masterpiece. All of Jesus' teaching is now distilled in the church and lives in the church to be enacted and rolled out in society today. And the trouble is, I think uh, the reason why we, we're looking at this topic in one sense is that over the years and the centuries, various mediocre painters and sometimes, frankly, quite poor painters have painted over the masterpiece in, in the name of sort of touching it up and improving it. And what we're trying to do is, uh, I don't know if you've seen those restorers sometimes, just ever so gently, skillfully, taking away the layers of mediocrity in order to get to the original masterpiece. That's what we're looking to do in this series as we look at God's call on the church. So with uh, this weapon in our hands, let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Ask God to reveal more of his will for us as his church in the 21st century in London, in Parsons Green, in our lives. Father, that's it. We, we know that you have a fantastic and awesome and passionate plan for your church. People called by you, known by you, saved, rescued, being washed and cleaned. And Lord, we simply ask that you'd reveal more and more of that plan to us as the church corporate here, but as us, to us as individuals within it too. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. When were you last passionate about something or someone? When did you last get sort of table-thumpingly agitated and concerned? When did, you, when did you write off a stiff letter? Bang off an email. Because you felt strongly about something. Passionate about something. Question comes to me because this week I'm a governor at Lady Margaret School and uh, one or two of the parents have been writing to the governors because they feel strongly about something. So strongly that they sent, I think it was a five-page email. <laughs> I started reading. I thought, oh, and it goes on and on. You scroll down and down. And my goodness, you feel strongly about this. <laughs> You've taken time to set out how you feel. <laughs> you've substantiated it with this and that and the other. You feel strongly. You've, you've set aside time. You're acting passionately. And the thing, whether or not I agree with what they write about is in one sense secondary to the fact that I'm, I'm engaging with someone who feels strongly, passionately about a school issue. It might be a political issue. It might be a social, cultural issue. Let me narrow the frame of reference. When did you last feel passionate about a gospel issue, about a Christian issue? When did you last feel strongly or passionately about something to do with Jesus and his name and his honor and his character? Now, I don't mean, it's not condemning you. I, I, I asked that question of myself, and actually I felt quite convicted as I read or, or discerned the passion that I read in this email this week. I thought, goodness, I asked myself, when did I last feel that passionate? 
in my ministry, the, the ministry I share with you, just the ministry of being a believer, Jesus Christ. And so I thought it was fitting. I, I wonder whether the Lord was proking me, really, as we come now to think of one metaphor of the church. The New Testament describes the army of God. The church here on earth as the army of God. In one sense, this um, theme of army, it continues the theme of the body. Um, one body, many parts. One army, many soldiers. And those soldiers you need to unite together to form one cohesive military unit. Picks up on the theme that is actually redolent in the New Testament. There's not too much overt expression of army, of, of military. There's one or two key and popular ones. But there's this undercurrent theme of a struggle. That, that there's, a, there's a kind of cost. There's a, a battle. There's a fight. There's, there's something attritional uh, about standing up in this world for Jesus Christ. And much of the, the teaching on growing as Christians is in the context of battle, struggle, wrestling, and of, of being watchful, guarding against some kind of common enemy. But I put it to you that the, the idea of church as army is, is maybe not as redolent now as some of these other images or metaphors. I wonder whether it's it's as strongly in the forefront of our minds today. I, I've been wondering why that is. It, it could be that we just feel a little bit self-conscious in the 21st century. As we, you know, we look around at us, we, you know, we want to be nice. And we, and we kind of, the image of an army is one that sort of, you know, is garrulous and fearsome. You know, it sort of doesn't quite resonate with, you know, kind of how we want to come across. Or it could be that just that we, we know so much more about the intensity of the actual theater of war. Uh, you know, the film crews and so on are there. We've seen the sort of blown off body parts and dead bodies uh, in a way that we could only imagine during the great wars. But I wonder whether actually they've had a cumulative effect, the loss of life over the last century. And uh, that which we know going on at the moment causes us to shrink back a little bit from you know, the church being engaged in fighting and warfare where there's maybe cost to life and limb. We've shrunk back. I certainly notice in our, you know, the songs that we sing, uh, the, 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 the content of our worship. And again, I don't mean this as a criticism, but it, it is an observation that, you know, we don't tend to sing, fight the good fight with all thy might. Onward, Christian soldiers. So, you know, if we were to strike that up and sing that, I wonder whether there's something in us that would shrink back, feel a little bit self-conscious about, you know, onward, Christian soldiers. When you sort of, we're marching in the love of God. So, you know, it's fine for the children. I wonder whether we, we can make that translation comfortably to us ourselves. And yet I want to argue that it's absolutely key. It's absolutely vital. And so I just want to spend the next 15 minutes or so with uh, one spiritual reality and then three reminders of that. One spiritual reality and then three reminders off the back of that. This is stuff that uh, I'm kind of assuming that all of us know to a greater or lesser extent. But I just wonder whether it's important for us to dust it down and to rehearse this and to have at the forefront of our consciousness who we are in terms of the army of God. The spiritual reality is this, and it's ju this is just a reminder for those of you who are engaged in the Recovering Truth Living Free course we did last year. Uh, you can get the talks. They're on our website, and you can download them. Um, uh, Recovering Truth Living Free 
And uh, this is a principle that I think it's helpful to remember. We live with the truth. We live in one world. But at the same time, there are two realms, two spheres of influence, two spheres of authority that are uh, operating in that one world. There is the natural sphere, that which we can see and touch and hear and perceive. This uh, wooden stand here is, is, is physical. It, it's sort of realized. I, and I can see it, I can touch it, I can feel it. You can hear the interaction of my knuckle on that wood. Stuff in the natural realm, the physical realm. But there's another realm of influence that we can't see with our natural eyes. It's the spiritual, or if you like, supernatural realm. And although we can't see it, it's nonetheless real for that and has an influence on our lives. For example, ultraviolet rays. We can't actually see them, but if you stand out in the midday sun, in the height of summer, which we long for, you, you don't put any protective cream on, then you'll soon feel the impact of those invisible rays. We can't see them, but we'll begin to know that they are real. We'll experience their power. Now, here's where the visual aid comes in. I want to draw on um, two principles that are quite important for us to be aware of and to be reminded of as to how these two realms interact. Here's the world, this sponge, and I'm going to place it in the realm of the water representing the spirit. So the sponge is the natural stuff. You can see it. That's our world. That's us, the place in which we live. And here it is, immersed now in this water representing the spirit realm. The Bible says right at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all of this with earth surrounded by the heaven, the heavenly realms, the spiritual realms. We can't see them, but they exist. Now, I want to ask a question. Why has the water entered the sponge? It's not a trick question. It's full of holes. Brilliant. I love that. It's a sort of non-physic answer, which we can all understand. Julia, thank you. It's full of holes. Or as someone said, it's absorbent. Yeah, it's, it's porous. The sponge is full of holes. It's porous. The reason why the water has entered into the sponge is because the sponge is designed to receive the water. It's not meant to be dry and crusty. That's where a sponge in nature lives as the water enters it. But actually, there's another reason. This is slightly more to do with physics. There's another reason why the water has entered the sponge. Yes, the sponge is porous, but also because... Brilliant. What an intelligent congregation we have. I had to research all this. Alice, you're brilliant. Or was that Edward? You're <laughs> feeding out. I don't know who that was. It's the pressure. The water is exerting a pressure on the sponge. If that wasn't so, then they just, they just mutually coexist. But the reason why the water has entered the sponge is for two reasons. The sponge is porous or full of holes, like that. And the water, at the same time, is exerting a pressure on it. 
Now, those two principles apply to the reality of our lives as we live in this one world, but influenced by these two realms. We are made to be porous to the spirit realm. If you like, we're full of holes. But God designed in each and every one of us holes to be open to and receptive to his spirit, his life. How we came into being. God formed, uh, made this natural thing uh, in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 1. He, made, he got sort of dust to the ground and he made a kind of morph figure. And then it says he breathed into this figure the breath of God, the spirit of God, it could be translated as. And this, this form became a living being. As, as the thing designed to receive the spirit of God, the breath of God, as it received it, it lived. Man, Adam. We're spiritually porous. We're created to receive the life of God. And the second thing is that the life of God, the spirit of God, the spirit realm, if you like, is at all times and in all ways exerting a pressure on the world, creation. The world in which we live is constantly being pressed by the spirit realm. Put it another way, what's going on in the unseen realm has a bearing on our lives. And we need to be aware of that reality, not just for an hour on Sunday, and we sort of box it away again and get on with real life. We need to be aware of that reality 24-7. That what has happened in the spiritual unseen realm and what is currently taking place in the unseen realm impacts our lives in the same way as the water invades the sponge. Ever since Genesis 3, there's been a struggle in the unseen realm. Ever since the serpent came to Eve and enticed her with the apple, enticed her to disobey what she knew God had told her to do, enticed her with her own power and authority. You, you're in control, you decide. That's what the serpent said, and when we colluded, in effect, uh, all of us, mankind, through the sin of Adam and Eve, it's called the fall from grace, the fall from the, the, the provision and the beauty and the wonder and the splendor and the provision of God. As we fell from that, we handed over authority. And human beings, you and I, were destined to live with that struggle and that wrestle. They say ignorance is bliss. It's wonderful in one sense, not being a Christian, not having the life of God reborn in you because you're just not aware of it half the time. We just blunder. I did before I became a Christian. I just blundered through life completely unaware that I, there, were, there were forces and spiritual beings having an impact on me and I was having an impact on the world in which I lived. And then when we come alive, when the Spirit of God comes alive in us, invades us, fills the holes, and we become aware of this wrestle and this tension, it pervades so much of the New Testament writings. So much of this living for good is in the context of, of pressures, influences, tearing at us, beseeching us to go another way. And all of us, many of us, I'm sure, will know that inner wrestle that Paul described before he became a Christian in Romans 7. I know what I should do, but I can't. And I know the stuff I, I shouldn't do, but I do it. 
this, this wrestle, this tension outside of, as we're becoming aware of, the Spirit of God engaging with us. So as soldiers of Christ, what do we do? How do we live within this context? Do we just have to kind of have a guess? I'm reminded of a, we were traveling in uh, the United States a couple of years ago. We'd hired a car and we were driving down uh, the whole of um, uh, Alabama. It's, it's, a, it's not the best of uh, parts in the United States. And uh, this little light had come on the dash of our hired car. And um, we frantically looked up the book, because there was just you know, all these little lights, and no idea what they meant. Looked up in the, in the log book that was there, or the guidebook, rather. And they said it had something to do with the tire pressure. We thought, oh, no, we're, we're, driving, we're looking to drive miles now to where we were heading. We'll need to check this out. But if, if you know, if you drive on these interstates, you can just drive for miles, and there's absolutely nothing or no one. But fortunately, we came to this little uh, intersection, crossroads in our country. And on the uh, intersection, fortunately, there was a garage. So we pulled in. But this was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it really was that sort of caricature of the kind of, you know, Midwest. Uh, there was sort of somewhere, you know, there was a cockerel crowing and a, a dog sort of barking and a bit of tumbleweed across the road. But that was it. And we went into this, we went into this garage and there was this kind of broken fan whirring in the, in the place where you pay. And there was this great big lady just sitting there. She was kind of rocking in a chair and her, her eyelids were sort of half closed and she looked at me and within a split second, she'd sum me up completely. And I thought, I'll, I'll just play along with this. I, I, I know she's kind of worked me out. So I, in my very best English, I said, excuse me, I wonder whether you could help. <laughs> uh, my car, which I had, seems to have broken. Oh, it's got a problem. Um, and I need to check the tire pressure. Could you help? And uh, she, uh, there was this, um, uh, uh, there was a pump outside, air pressure pump. So I went outside. And it, all it is, is just, it was just a lead from the, from the, from the, you know, the, the actual pump. And I couldn't see there was any gauge on it. And I, what I needed to do was, it wasn't that I had a flat tire, I just needed to measure the pressure of the tires. So I went back in and I said, um, can I just ask, I'm sorry, how do, I, how do I know what the pressure of the tire is? I can see how I pump it up and where the valve goes in, but how do I know what the pressure of the tire is? And she looked at me as if I was, you know, born yesterday. And then she just said, you just have to guess. And I... I looked at her and I thought, you guess? You just guess how much tire pressure there is? So I thought, surely there must be, I'm missing something here. I'm, I'm, I'm just a dumb Englishman. I'm missing something here. So I said, Can, do you mind if I ask, what, what do other people do when they measure their tire pressure, when they use the tire pressure? Can you tell me what they do? And there was a long pause as she looked at me. I must have been completely dumb in her eyes. So stupid. And she said, they just guess too. So Joe and I, we thought, you know, we've got the three kids in the back. We're thinking, okay, let's just, they, they look fine. They look fine, the tires. So we'll just drive on. And, and maybe we'll get to another garage. It'll be okay. So we drove. We didn't do anything. We, we didn't want to guess. We just drove on. And actually, after about five miles, the light went out and never came back on again. So we lived to tell the tale. But fortunately, God isn't like that lady in the garage. He, he doesn't leave us to guess. You see, in the unseen realm, he's given us the gift of his spirit. It's like a transmitter. So that that which is unseen becomes clear and real to us. It's like this radio. 
Do you want to know the kick cricket score right now? And it's a bit of a sponge in terms of the information that comes through. It's, it's pulled through. Oh, no, they must have rain. Uh, they're just gabbling on about something else there. That's Radio 4, because the radio waves are all around this building. We're not aware of them. We can't see them until we get a transmitter. And then we can tune in and know exactly what is being transmitted on Radio 4 on the cricket. And God's given us a transmitter so that we can know. That's why, with confidence, we can serve as soldiers in God's army because we can be aware of what's going on in the theater of war, as it were. We can be aware of where the victories are and where we need to be aware of enemy activity. We can be aware of where God is advancing as well as areas where there's temptation or danger. The spiritual reality is that we live in one world with these two realms, and we can be aware of that. Here briefly are the three reminders, and I've touched on them by inference. We have an enemy, first reminder. We have the victory, that's the second reminder. We are all part of the army together, that's the third reminder. We have an enemy. Let me just say, and I've touched on this on the recovering truth, so we, I, I won't go over it massively, but he has a scheme, he has a strategy for us as a church, for, for, for Christianity worldwide, uh, for that as it breaks down, the Christian faith as it breaks down, nation by nation, country by country, area by area. He has a scheme for us here. He has a scheme for you. He wants to squeeze the life of God out of you so that you dry up. Because then what happens for Christians or people connected with the church, when we dry up, when the life of God is squeezed out of us, is we go one of two ways. We, we either slip into activism and we strive up, because we know what we should do. We should be Christians. We should do good things. And so we try even harder on the one hand, or we try and we fail. We, we, can't, we can't live the life of God without the life of God. And we recognize that. We're honest to it. We fail, and we go and we slip back into passivity. I just, oh, I can't be bothered. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just sort of hunker down and bimble along in my own little sphere. It's exactly the scheme that the enemy has for individuals to dry us up so that we, we go one of those two ways. Or his scheme for us corporately as a church or as a Christian nation is for us to lose our ability, as Paul puts it here, to strive together. It's the top of page 1114. Paul talking about uh, coming to see these Philippians so that, or, or even if he doesn't, whether he hears about them, that he knows that they stand firm in the one spirit, striving together with one accord for the faith of the gospel. And what the enemy would love to do is to weaken our resolve. To, to separate us out so that we don't recognize ourselves corporately as an army. We're not engaging with one another and encouraging the life of God in one another, but to separate us out so that we're weakened as an army unit. It's so subtle. His, his, it's what it, so often what he does for us corporately as Christians is he just changes the emphasis. You can even play with that word, emphasis. If I just change the emphasis on the word emphasis, I can make it into it sound like an entirely different word. 
emphasis. When I say emphasis and emphasis, it's exactly the same word, exactly the same letters, and exactly the same order, but it sounds so different. If I came out with emphasis in a sentence, you double take. What? What did you say? Sounds so different. Very subtle. Hardly any change, and yet it has such an impact. I was just reflecting recently on the thing that's been all over the tabloids, but then other stuff around marriage. See, the thing is that Christian marriage is being seriously undermined and seriously eroded in our understanding of what it is and of how it plays out in our lives. Seriously undermined. But I'm not sure that we, I, am aware of it. The enemy loves that. He's just shifting the emphasis. He's getting us to focus on things like civil partnerships and the rights of individuals. And isn't it right to affirm love and faithfulness? Yes, absolutely. I totally, there's no way I deny that. But all of the focus on faithfulness and love and rights is channeled into civil partnerships. And then we say, well, hang on, why can't civil partnerships be exactly the same as marriage? These are debates and discussions taking place in Christian circles right now. And the reason is that notwithstanding all that's good about individuals' love and faithfulness and commitment, it's not the same as Christian marriage. But by focusing on civil partnerships, we're losing sight of what it is to uphold and sustain Christian marriage. So that, John Terry and Wayne Bridge. What's the thing that we've been most concerned about? It's about whether John Terry and Wayne Bridge will shake hands. Has anyone given any thought to John Terry's wife and about his marriage? It's been a little sideline, a little paragraph. But it's about their friendship and how they get on in the England team. Now look, I'm a football fan, but I'm ashamed of it, frankly, because the enemy has sucked me into looking at the wrong thing, shifting my emphasis. Is anyone concerned about the sanctity of marriage? And slowly and surely, the whole thing is undermined. The enemy. There's a battle out there. Is anyone, does anyone need convincing there's a war on for us Christians? And as individuals, we need to be aware of the enemy, number one. Number two, though, far more important, we need to be aware of our victory. We have a victory in Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. Look at this. He's in chains for the gospel he describes in chapter one of the Philippians. And look what it, that's uh, reference verse 13. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. It's a reference to his house imprisonment. But look how he prays in verse 19. I know that through your prayers, or, or the, just the result of prayers, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. See where his hope is. See where his, his focus is. His security is in Jesus Christ. And that's how he can pray uh, in verse 11 for the Philippians, that they be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And uh, so too in verse 26, through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me, not in their own strength, not in circumstantial evidence or signs or whatever else is going on in their world, but in Christ Jesus. Why Christ Jesus? Because he has won the victory. He has won the victory. We declare it every week. That's why I love reciting the creed. That yes, crucified, dead, and buried, but on the third day he rose again. He smashed death. Not only that, he ascended into heaven. Not only that, he sits at the right hand authority of God. 
He is alive in heaven. He rules and he reigns with authority. And if we are in him, we are in that victory. We're in that power and that authority. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're called to live out here what he has, the authority and the power to oversee in heaven. If we are in him and he in us, that's our task, that's our challenge, to get passionate about, to get focused about. That's why we sing. We don't sing so much these days. Maybe it's a challenge. Jamie and I could sit down and Katie, death of death and hell's destruction. Guide me, O thou great redeemer. Land me safe on Canaan's side. Or as Paul puts it in verse 27, whatever happens as citizens of heaven. Paul knows heaven hadn't fully arrived yet, but that's what he's claiming. You are citizens of heaven. First reminder, there's an enemy. Second reminder, that we have the victory in Christ. Third reminder, victorious in Christ. We're an army together. Don't let the enemy divide you. Who are you meeting with? Who are you getting to know within the family of God, within the body of Christ, within the army? Can you imagine a commanding officer giving orders to a, a whole load of disparate bunch, having to go to individuals in each case? to give the same, no, they gather together. Listen up, men, women. Here's the command, here's the order. Is everyone clear? How would it be if you went out to battle, encountering live action? You had your weapon, but you noticed that the guy either side of you didn't have his weapon. Would you feel secure? It's about looking out for one another as part of the army and having others look out for us. That's redolent in this phrase, verse 27, uh, top of page 114, that you stand firm in the one spirit and strive together with one accord for the faith of the gospel. One reality, we live in a world, two realms influencing us. The reminder is that we have an enemy. The second reminder is that he has been defeated. We have victory in Christ. And we can stand together and fight and contend, strive together as the army of God. As I finish, can I ask you, have you signed up to the army? Do you, do you know you're serving in the ranks of the army? Have you got your sort of, whatever it is, your certificate, or your inscription? In olden days, it used to be the king's crown. Do you have it in your hand? Do you know you're signed up and serving? Are you equipped to fight? Have you been trained? When did you last go on a refresher course to equip you and train you, to focus you? It's why uh, Alpha is such a good course to do. It's why it's so good to be in the house groups so that we can constantly keep ourselves up to speed with active service. Have you been briefed? Do you know what your particular task is as a husband, as a wife, as a parent? as a, a single person with time and uh, focus for people around about, as a, a senior person with wisdom and experience, as a young person in school or college, a student, whatever your context is, have you received a briefing, a, a charge from the commanding officer, Jesus Christ, by his spirit? Do you see the reality? Are you prepared to engage and to fight?
H is going to help with us, uh, help us with that a little bit next week as we look for that. But just uh, for now, let's stand together. We're going to sing our final song in just a few minutes.